0: of a people, the people of God? What will become of a people who don't know what it is to tremble before God? Whatever God that they have known, and I trust that they have, if you're saved and you're a Christian, you've come to know the saving God. You can't be saved apart from that. But what would become of a people who what they know of that God doesn't maybe ever produce in them a sense of trembling before this God. A sense of being disturbed and arrested. A a moment of confusion where you don't know whether to run toward this God or run away from him. I wonder if those people would be humble people. I wonder if those people would be serving people. I wonder if they would be petty people. I wonder if they would be easily offended, hard to get along with, particular and demanding. I wonder what kind of a people might there be who are detached from an awareness that God is a disturbing God. An awesome, awful God. That word used to mean something, awful. I mean, awful. I think we live in a time where there is a famine for greatness. We don't know what great is and I know this is my homeland and I'm from here, but we're just, we're just like stupid Americans. I mean, we just have redefined greatness. We love the idea of stuff that's great, but we just got some really, really weird ideas about what's great. We're strangers to greatness. I think the people of God are starving for greatness. All right, listen, to, listen to our culture. This is a thought from a... Woman who's got a blog and writes from an article called Greatness as a Way of Life. She says, We all want great lives, right? It's just that we, we may have some funny ideas about what constitutes greatness. We may equate it with a celebrity or public accomplishment, winning an Oscar, leading the next NASA expedition. But the likelihood that we'll wind up with a statue in our hand or on the moon beneath our feet seems sufficiently remote that we may willingly exchange greatness for good enough. How readily we dismiss those dreams as childish fantasy. After all, most people go their entire lives without once being asked for their autographs. The truth is, we are born for greatness, God endows us with the potential to live a great life. A great person is one who is respected and well loved, makes a difference in the lives of others, and is remembered beyond his or her lifetime. A great person makes dreams come true that benefit others. A great person leaves a mark. We all have this capacity. How many of us choose to exercise our divine potential is another matter? Greatness is not born of luck or talent. It is a product of habit and hard work. Remember, greatness is your destiny, but it's never going to arrive at your doorstep like Ed McMahon with a letter from Publishers Clearinghouse. Greatness is neither fleeting nor fantasy. Do a single act of greatness today, then tomorrow, and the next, and soon you will discover what the the great life you once believed elusive is the very one you're leading. All right, at one level, I can appreciate that. It's, it's motivational. It's positive. It's trying to get some of us to kind of launch out, do a little bit more with your life, use your potential. Right? You're probably wondering. What do, I, do I agree with that quote? Do I not? Keith, how are you using this? Can you, can you tilt it one way or the other and give away why you just quoted that person? Well, the reason why I'm attracted to that quote is because that's how we're normally introduced to greatness. Greatness at a human level. Greatness in terms of what you can be. You can be great. You just need to learn to tap into being great. You need to figure out how to live a great life. You, 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 you. It's all about how great you can be. And so therefore, we sit in the theater of human greatness. And once you start getting worried about you being great, well, your next concern is, what kind of greatness is around me? Who else is great? And how are they great? And how do I compare to their greatness? and are they in the way of my greatness and all of a sudden greatness is an, is an interesting issue but we as a people we we want greatness right i mean youtube is a means for individuals to publish their own greatness now everybody's laughing but most of us are tuned into this weird publication right we want to see. We want to see highlights. We we like to do highlights. We want highlights of the dude who shouldn't be doing that with a skateboard. The the guy who that that that's sad and painful. And why was he doing that in the first place? But it's great. It's unusual. It's strange phenomena. And we're publishing it on YouTube. And so there's everything. There's there's basketball highlights there, you know. And if if that's not your category of greatness, then, then you want to turn over to the food channel and watch somebody be great in the kitchen. I mean, that's just incredible that they can take that ingredient and that ingredient, and some of these competition shows, you want to see somebody get like 30 seconds worth of notice on I want you to cook. You got here's your ingredients: you got steak, you got chicken. You, you you got vegetables and motor oil. Go! It's like, uh I can do something with this. We'll do this, we'll cut this up. And you're just enamored with this 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 guy's great. Look at that. I've never seen Havil and Flow like that. Um we we, we we love greatness. And listen, I'm a sports enthusiast. So we we love greatness in sports, right? Now, I came across an interesting article. Psychology Today had put out, and I I couldn't escape it. In this realm of our quest for greatness, listen to this. Psychologists are closing in on the conclusion that sport has many of the same effects on spectators as religion does. The similarities between sport fandom and organized religion are striking. Consider the vocabulary associated with both faith, devotion, worship, ritual, Dedication, sacrifice, commitment, spirit, prayer, suffering, festival, and celebration. Right? Well, sports is now a substitute for religion. article says, as a group, sports fans are fairly religious, according to research. It, it is also curious that as religious attendance rates have dropped off in decent dec- recent decades, interest in sports spectatorship has soared. Some scholars believe that fans are highly committed to their favorite stars and teams in a way that gives focus and meaning to their daily lives. In addition, sports spectatorship is a transformative experience through which fans escape their humdrum lives just as religious experience help the faithful to transcend their everyday existence. From that perspective... The face painting, hair tinting, and distinctive costumes are thought to satisfy specific religious goals, including identification with the team, escape from everyday limitations and disappointments, and establishing a community of fans. So far, the transformative aspect of fandom are quite close to those associated with religion. Without question, we are a people starving for greatness. We want to see something great, something that captures us, something we'll spend money for it. We will go places. We will stand in lines. We will park far away and walk in the rain to see greatness. Now, now here's here's the problem, though. For some reason, God just ain't all that. The greatness of God doesn't do it for us the way some of these other things do it for us. We get jazzed, enamored, fascinated. There's not a moment's hesitancy for any of us to talk about the game around the cooler. If you got season tickets, it don't matter if it's raining, right? Does it matter, really, if it's raining? I'm, listen, I'm cheap, so... If it's raining, it just means me and the boys are going to be really wet when we get to the game because I'm not parking in the Superdome. I refuse to pay the price. So I have figured out how to park really far away and run underneath the overpasses, you know. (laughs) Quick, boys, it's just a a 30-yard run to the next overpass. I know it's pouring down, but we can make it, and we run to the next one, and we get a break, and then we run to the next one and get wet, get into the Superdome. Listen, nothing, nothing stops that devotion, right? I mean, we are, we are radical. Got clothing, painting our bodies, painting hair, screaming at the top of our lungs, prone to violence in the meeting. I mean, I mean, in a moment, in a moment, I mean, that, that idiot visiting from the other team behind us, it's like, am I really saved? Because I want to kill that guy right now. You know, <laughs> we're, we're having a religious event in this moment churches could beg to have that kind of flavor in their meetings All right, listen we're people looking for greatness we're starving for greatness and you have a God who's sitting on the sidelines going hello hello not on YouTube maybe you want to put me on there but I'm pretty cool Look at this passage in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. Part of the thing that I love about engaging Malachi is the, the dialogue element that God has created in, in this prophet. Many, many books of the Bible will explain to you things that are happening. The prophet will talk about things that are happening. This, this is a dialogue between God. It's an argument God is having with his people. He is talking to them about their lives. He's talking to them about himself. And so God is going to make his own case for himself in this. So you and I, we're just—we're listening to God talk to us about what matters to God. Verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where? is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that it is, is its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. You snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame Sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? says the Lord. (coughs) Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Lord, you are on display in this passage. You say some things about yourself, but the way you say some things says some things about yourself as well. Lord, it is, it is grief to think that you would stand before your people and have to make a case for your greatness. The people in Malachi's day, and Lord, we we are not distant from them, not far enough, would be so unaware so out of touch, so unamazed with your greatness, that you'd have to bring it up to us and ask for it. Or this is a sobering passage for a people who have no idea how to tremble before you cuz we don't know you all that well help us lord today help us oh god to know you well in jesus name i can't see If I am a father, if I am a master, if I am a great king, if I am the great Lord of hosts, why this presentation? Why these questions? Why is God presenting this like there's, there's something that doesn't connect. There's this incongruity between what God is. If, if I am these things, well, then why are you saying it that way, God? Because when I look at your lives, it doesn't look like I am those things. There's a disconnect. He looked at the way in which these people live their lives, and he said, if I were these things to you, you would not be in the shape you're in. Your lives wouldn't look this way. If you had a category for me to exist in true greatness, your life would be different than it is. That's what God's saying right here. We need to recognize there, there is a connection between the lives that we live and the God we think he is. There's a connection. Richard Phillips says, theology and anthropology are always linked in order to understand the truth about yourself and other people, you have to see the truth about God and vice versa. You, you want to understand why we struggle so much with, with relating to one another? Well, my, much of it's because we lack humility. Thank you, my friend. We lack humility. And where, do you, where does one get humility from? One does not get humility by reading Webster's definition of humility. One doesn't get humility by being introduced to a concept. One gets humility when one looks at God, that God gives scale to things. You might think you're a big basketball player when you're this the, the little boy at the playground and you're bigger than everybody else, and then you, you go stand next to Shaquille O'Neal and all of a sudden you find your place. I'm, I'm a little boy. Right? You remove God from the equation, and all we've got. Is comparing ourselves with ourselves, and we have a breeding ground for, for arrogance and comparison. And you know, when I stand before God in His greatness, I, I do this incredible shrinking move to where I'm, I'm really, really, really small in the presence of an incredibly great God. If I'm struggling with humility, and that's gonna pop up when you do something I don't like. Or or you treat me in a way that I don't deserve. I don't deserve. I, I don't deserve to be treated a certain way. Keith, why don't you deserve to be treated that way? Because there's some greatness right here, and you better respect the greatness that you're bumping into right here. So you don't treat me like that because I have some greatness, don't I? Well, I just gave away the fact that I've been reading too many motivational speeches. I've tapped into I've got potential. I'm something. And, and I'm being great right now, and you're not appreciating that I'm being great, so you and I are going about to have a relationship problem. You know, and when I read the Bible, I find out man quickly, quickly, quickly needs to get out of the greatness business. You're never going to know a greater day of joy, a greater day of release, a greater day of freedom from your misery than the day you decide there's only one in the universe who's great, and my business is about making him to be seen. Not about making me to be seen. Remember John Piper described the condition of these people. They'd returned from exile. He said they'd grown skeptical of God's love, careless in worship, indifferent to the truth, disobedient to the covenant, faithless in their marriages, stingy in their offerings. Where, where did that come from? Well, God zeros in on it right here. He says, "You fail to honor me as a father." Where's all this stuff getting generated from? Well, if I'm a father, you're failing to honor me as a father. You fail to honor me as a master, so therefore you don't do what I say. I said, treat each other a certain way. I'm the master. You don't do it because you don't honor me as master. I, I'm the Lord of hosts. You don't honor me as that. That's why your lives look the way they do. That's where the condition comes from. Remember, this this whole book gets generated out of who God is. If God isn't these things, he's got no beef with the people. He's got nothing to take up issues with them. If they don't act like God is their father and they don't live a life like he's their father, if they don't act like God's the owner and master, they don't act like God's the Lord of hosts over everything, it's not a problem if he's not those things. It only becomes an issue when God is these things. So what defines the conversation that you and I have about living the Christian life? Who God is. And the reason I, want, I wanted us to spend time in Malachi before we study the book of Acts is because is if you don't have a right, normal view of God, you can't read the book of Acts and figure out how to be the people of God. If greatness for us is about human activity and YouTube experiences and comparing this church's activity with that one and what people in the modern church setting are doing versus what I'm doing, whoa, look how great we are. Well, that's not the basis of comparison. I I don't want to take us there. I want to stand before God and have a view of God and then figure out what's, what's the normal Christian life based on what I see right there. That's the problem with Malachi's people. They're not experiencing that because they don't have a right view of God. This is a helpful, insightful revelation in this passage. God chooses to reveal himself in a multifaceted way. Right? God is not just one category that we tend to love. God says, if I am a father, right? so you have father imagery there. He says, if I am... The boss, the owner, the Lord, you have another set of imagery there. If I'm a great king, if I'm the Lord of hosts, you have another set of imagery there. All right, now listen, I've got to say, my default setting, when I think about God, the initial thing that I'm going to respond to is the fatherhood of God. That's just been my Christianity. That's been what has been my default setting for God. So when I think about God, God being my father, I'm affected by that. And, and we're supposed to be affected by that. God chooses that imagery over and over and over again. Right, but this is a people here who last week we, we said, God says, I have loved you. Are you affected by that? I am a father to you, right? There's imagery there. There's, there's care involved, right? You have God who is postured towards you in intimacy and care provision, future promise and inheritance, wisdom and strength and stability, right? Everything that a father was to be, God says, do you you feel my effect on your life that way? If I'm a father, here's the response. Where, Where is my honor? If you're feeling the effect of God being a father to you, then, then our life will exude the honoring of God. Now, what's interesting, that word there, uh, you know, this may be informative for some of us as dads. Uh, you know, if, if I am a father, where's my dudeness, you know? Where's my hanging with you? We're pals, we're buds kind of a thing, you know? Uh, no, not in this passage. In this passage, what God is after as fathers, this is informing for us as fathers, he is after honor. The issues that, are, that you are having in your life right now, people, are because you don't know what it is to honor me. That word honor is a heavy word. Actually, it, does, it describes heavy and weightiness. It's the word chabad, the word for glory. It's the same thing God's always after. He says, where is the giving of glory to me? That's what's due me. I'm a father. I'm due your honor. God happened to make an argument for that. If I am your master, what's the imagery there? Well, the word is a form of the word from which we get Adonai, Lord. If I am your Lord, if I am the master, the owner, of everything. Where is my fear? Right? I, this, this, is a, this is a real word. This is not a word to apologize for. This is God arguing for his people to fear him. He says, you can't know me correctly if this is not in your vocabulary. The Hebrew word is more. It means fear, terror, reverence, a sense of fear or awe that causes separation. Or brings respect if I am that in your life do you feel like you need to do this right now because when God showed up and manifested himself and he pulled back the veil and let people see who he was listen uh, they didn't go run down the driveway towards him, they stepped back God should have to remind you that it's okay You don't need to be that kind of running away afraid. And he has to convince us, I'm your father. You can come near. But I, I, I think we're fine with God saying, I'm your father. I don't think we love the category of awesome respect for his greatness. If I'm the great Lord of hosts, right? That, that word host, this is a big, awesome. This is God collecting the universe into this statement. That word hosts, it, it was used to describe armies. It was used to describe the angels. It was used to describe the stars in the galaxy. And God says, I'm, I'm the Lord of hosts. I'm the Lord of it all. I'm enormous and powerful. And if I'm that... What is up with what you guys are living? All right, that's, that's what's being said here. Verse 7. There's a problem here with the offerings. The offerings reveal the lack. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table must be, may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not true? Evil. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? God says, Your offerings are evil. Do you recognize that they were bringing offerings? These are churchgoers, these people show up for the meetings. Their offerings are an offense to God. Ray Pritchard says, it's easy to understand what was happening. Say a man has 50 lambs in his flock, of which 10 were excellent, 35 were good, and 5 were blemished somehow. Now he knows that those 5 blemished animals won't bring him much money on the open market, so what does he do? He uses those 5 blemished animals as his offering to God. What does it matter if they are lame or sick or covered with sores? It's still an offering. It's like killing two birds with one stone. He gets rid of his blemished animals, and he still meets his obligations to bring a sacrifice to God. There's only one problem. God knows exactly what this man is doing. He's keeping the best for himself, and he's giving his junk to God. It it, it is it is who God is that makes this evil. Do you understand? It would not have been an evil thing for any of these guys to be invited over to their next-door neighbor's house for a barbecue and to go out in the back and grab one of his lame, spotted lambs and bring it next door, cut it, put it on the grill, watch the game with friends. There would have been no grounds for offense there. Just some common dudes hanging out having some common food that's not what you offered to the Lord of hosts. For him, you you'd better recognize that's not a worthy offering. You just made a statement about the commonness of God. You brought some rank hamburger over. That's real, really, that's, well, you know, I didn't have time to prepare something. And, uh, you know, God even has to make a point in helping them understand this. He says, you know, if you brought this to your governor, another human being that you watched on YouTube, you'd do a better job of getting around that guy. You'd be impressed when you get to have dinner with the governor. Wow. You got got LeBron James coming over for lunch today. I'm going to have to leave the meeting early. It's LeBron James, you know. Keith, do you know who LeBron James is? I mean, do you know he's the MVP in the NBA? Do you, do you know? Here, let me show you some highlights on YouTube. This dude is great. Can you believe that move? Unbelievable. Listen, we have some ideas about greatness, and they're all human, weird, limited, earthly Listen, you know, we're, we're not that far from these guys, right? We're not that far. Some of you guys will remember, I, if you've been to the Alpha course, there's a an image that I stick up there on the Alpha course. It's a picture of the Green Bay Packer fan. He's got an old van that he has painted in Green Bay Packer colors. It's got a big giant G on it. He's wearing green outfits and hats and everything stupid you can imagine, anything having to do with Green Bay is on him, it is him. He's there, the parking lot is empty, the game must be in like four hours, he's there then. He's tailgating, he's set up an event because the really devoted worshipers are going to get there early. (laughs) And we're going to barbecue together, baby, because we're going to meditate on what's about to happen here, because we're about to go into the service. Whoo! Man, can you believe? And, I, and we're all up on the stats. I mean, nobody having to say, did you read your stats this week? Yes! You know who's on the engine reserve? Yes, yes, and yes, and yes. and Well, no, he's off now. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't catch that on the ESPN last night. I was up until 1.30 trying to get an update. I mean, this is devotion! Right? This guy's nuts! Now, if you get here too early on a Sunday morning, there's nobody here. No tailgating going on. We're just happy if we, you know, are buttoning our pants buckle on the way in. I just barely got here. Whoo! Th- third song, not too bad this week. All right. I mean, what do you? We we will. We will miss. We will miss a meeting, and a gathering of the people of God for the lamest of reasons. I don't know. Hey, when was the last time you missed your your golf tea time? You know? I mean, really. There's stuff in our life that we make sure I'm gonna be there for that. If I miss American Idol, I'll tape it. And don't tell me what happened. You know, I'll watch it on my own. But if you miss a service. Do you get the CD? Do you go online and download it? You know, do you recognize that, that God has chosen to communicate in this moment right here, right now? You're having a meeting with God. And I don't have any problem telling you that. I know I'm just a human being standing in front of you. But uh, the, the master, the owner, has commissioned this meeting to do exactly what it's doing right now. So, so you're encountering God through the preaching of the word. You get the video if you miss? Do you understand? We're not too far from Malachi. We are strangers to greatness, and we've bought into just the goofiest bunch of greatness we can possibly find. Looks in verse 10. This is the response of God to our lack of appreciating greatness. Oh, that there were one among you. Who would shut the doors? That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Oh, that somebody would just close the doors. What's the problem here? Does God all of a sudden hate the activity that they're doing? Be very careful how you read this passage. Does God hate the activity here? Or is he hating the lack of heart in the activity here? This is heartless offerings. This is non-worshipful worship. He calls them cheats in one place and robbers in another. He says, your heart is far from me. That's always been the issue with God. Be, be very careful that you don't go to the wrong place when you hear God say stuff like that. Oh, that someone would just close the doors. That's what God wants. God just wants to stop all this activity. Really, where did all these ideas for this activity come from? The offering of sacrifices, the fact that they would have a temple, that they would be priests. Who, whose ideas were those? They're God's ideas. God gave that revelation. God wanted those things to be a means of something in our lives. The problem's not with those things. How many of us turn our nose up and it's kind of like, you know, you know, the Old Testament. <laughs> oh, I shudder. I almost want to throw up. The law. Hey, be careful. That's given by God as a means for you and I to figure out who he is and how to relate to him. All that carefulness, all that make sure you sew everything on just a certain way. What, what, what's all the detail of that? God's into Clothing? God's trying to teach us something about how you approach greatness. The details matter. You better pay attention to your life. You come near to me. Don't, don't get that, you know, postmodern hippie theology. You know, the idea that, well, you know, well, you know, dude, I, I, don't, I don't always come to church. You know, listen, church for me, is, it's just being with the people that I love and, and us just sharing and doing life together. You know, that's what church is for me. Or, you know, that's the problem with the church is people get inside their little buildings and they live inside their buildings. You want to do church, getting out there with the down and out. That's church for me, man. I'm out there. I'm out there doing the, doing the stuff. So I'm not against those things. I met a guy early in my Christian life. He and I talked about God, talked about being saved, and I remember riding in the car. I'm a teenager. And he says something like, You know, so, you know, what's wrong with, you know, church for me is just, you know, just sitting underneath a tree, just kind of thinking on God. That's church for me. Hey, all right. How about, how about, how about this? How about you figure out what God said was church? And, and you get in line with that, see, because he is the Lord. He is the master. Where's my fear? I said, do it this way. You said, well, ah, <laughs> yeah, that's cool for some, but I just do this, you know. Hey, that's good. You want to go sit on a tree, gather all your friends, hang out, do that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever. But, you know, when the people of God gather together, you honor God. You come be with God's people because God had this idea. This was his idea. That we'd gather together and we would celebrate and worship and learn together. Get these ideas about people just, you know, well, you know, I, I don't, I know this passage eventually gets into tithing. You know, I, I don't tithe. I, I volunteer down at the community center and, you know, I'm just doing a lot of helpful things. You know, right now my next door neighbor's going through a bunch of stuff and I'm helping out there and, hey, that's cool. I don't have any problem with that. I encourage you, do all those things. But, but just who gave you permission to ignore what God said? God said, I want your money. God did say, listen, there's a bunch of choices out there. Some of you guys will be into the money thing. You just kind of throw money at stuff. Some of y'all like to volunteer. Uh, some of y'all just like to think about doing stuff. Hey, whatever. You know, whatever, that's all good. It's all up to you, whatever you'd like. That's not what God said. God said, out of the first of the produce in your life, you turn and give it to me. That's the first thing. First thing you do. All right, well, we're going to find out later that these guys weren't doing that. And listen, you know, they, they went, oh, Keith, that's, you know, that's this or that's that. Or, listen, don't get more spiritual than the Bible. At the end of Malachi, we don't get introduced to a bunch of people who had deeper revelation. Oh, that's cute, Keith. You know, but I, I just see some things. Now that we're in the New Testament, I just see some things. And really, okay, well, at the end of the book, those of you seeing some things are gonna be called robbers. Robbers. <laughs> Cheats here and robbers there. So, you know, when God has this conversation, it doesn't sound like, hey, whatever. You know, that's good. See, this this is a people who don't know how to respect God. They don't know how to tremble before God. I put this in your outline. God established certain means in our lives, offerings, tithes, reverent worship, etc., not because he needed them, but because we needed them. Because if you don't have a giant category an awesome category, a reverential, blown away, tremble before God, amazed, dazzled, drawn category for God, you are going to be prey to everything in this world and you will serve idols the rest of your life. God doesn't need these things from us. God says, if I was hungry, do you think I'd I'd order food from you? I'm the God of the universe. When there was nothing, I just said it and it existed. I'm pretty sure I could order up a meal if I got hungry. I don't need you to do that for me. You need to do that. You need to worship. You need to find me as the dominant force in the universe. You need to see me as the Lord of hosts. You need it. I don't need it. Don't have some little weak, wimpy version of God here. You know, poor little God, and he just needs some attention from us. I ain't going there. You and I need to give attention because in our hearts we need it. These things became a means of our experiencing God as Father, Master, and the great Lord of hosts. These things that were being neglected, but they were a means to experience that in their lives. Now let me introduce you to a man. Last week we met a man named Joshua who knew what it was to be loved by God with that Jacob I have loved kind of a love. I want to introduce you to a man... Isaiah, chapter 6, who encountered true greatness. Isaiah is a prophet. We don't know much about him before this moment begins the tale of his life connecting with God. It's about 740 B.C. It's about 300 years before Malachi. All right, so that's where we are in the timeline of things. He's 300 years before Malachi. He's called... As a prophet, a great king named Uzziah has resided as leader over the people of Israel for many years. And the nation has been very prosperous. But towards the end, Uzziah's faithfulness to God began to wane. The people began to wane. Prosperity didn't, didn't work out well for them. Be careful how you love prosperity. You get enough prosperity and you have, a, you have fits on your hands. Uzziah had fits on his hands. He was a very prosperous man. They were prosperous. Their hearts begin to wander, and a decline has set in. And God calls this man named Isaiah as a prophet. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. At the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. All right, get get this picture. King Uzziah has died. There's going to be a power struggle. There's going to be issues. When a king dies in this setting, there's a bunch of issues that break out. There's a a future direction. Who's going to lead? How are we going to do? So there's a lot of problems taking place right now. King Uzziah, our Isaiah, is, is summoned by God, and it's as though he stands... And, and God somehow pulls back the curtain of the heavens, and, and he's allowed to peer into the throne room. Now, I think what's helpful for us in this moment is to recognize this, this throne room setting is always going on. Okay? It, it's not as though Isaiah... God stays the throne room for Isaiah, and then when Isaiah goes away, the throne room goes away. Now, this is the throne of God, where uniquely, God's presence is everywhere, but uniquely, God's presence is dwelling on his throne. He is seated on the throne. This is always going on. This scene exists all the time. The greatness of God, the loud, buzzing, intimidating greatness of God exists all the time. All the time. In the midst of, of Isaiah perhaps living with his neighbors going, what are we going to do now? Isaiah is dead. What will happen to us? And all the fear and fretting and worry that's going on in that moment of question about what life is going to be like on earth. There's this humming, buzzing, intimidating thing going on in the heavens all the time. All the time God is great. All the time his greatness is in the heavens, right? We get another chance to tune into that a little bit later on. It's the verse that the Lord had stirred Tammy's heart earlier, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked, right? Isaiah looks in Isaiah 6. Some 800 years later, John is looking. I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many. Angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. right? We're into the millions. This guy is looking at the throne and he sees millions of angels saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive. Worthy is the lamb to receive. It's like a vacuum. It's like everything flows towards him. You're worthy of it all, God. Worthy is the lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now this, this is an intimidating scene. Right, we see angels, we have no idea what these angels look like. Right, what are you seeing? I say angels, you just, you just went to the boutique, didn't you? Little fat little babies with wings flying around the throne. And wow, there's millions of them. The, the word seraphim came from a Hebrew word seraph, which had to do with a serpent. These things probably look more like dragons than they did like cute little babies. These things were dinosaurs with wings. They were enormous. And and they said when they spoke, they shook the place when they spoke. Can you imagine being in this setting? These things probably sounded like Apache attack helicopters flying around, millions of them around the throne of God, facing God, advertising. Here is the center of it all, right here. This is the most important place, the most important person, the most important thing happening is right here in front of us. And these these creatures had to actually be designed to be that close. Wings that they could fly and cover themselves and, and hide themselves from the God that they were so attracted to. That's the throne room. That's what Isaiah experiences. He gets a revelation of true greatness Ray Ortland says, the whole earth is full of his glory. We keep trying to fill it with monuments to our own glory, kingdoms, businesses, hit songs, athletic victories, and other mechanisms of self-salvation. But the truth is better than that. Created reality is a continuous explosion of the glory of God. And history is the drama of his grace awakening in us dead sinners' eyes to see and taste, to enjoy, and courage to obey. Plotting through our daily routines, we seldom feel God's glorious presence. We are absorbed in our own petty ambitions. But the truth is, God not only deserves to reign supreme, he does reign supreme. And his reign is glorious Isaiah is able to sense the power of God's presence. I mean, do you, do you realize right now, I don't know all that's going on in everybody's lives. We all got lives. We're busy. We got stuff. Things are working. Things are broke. Things are troubling us. We're in a good mood today. A bunch of stuff. But if somehow there was a crank on this ceiling, and I could just start doing this, and that ceiling would open up, and and you and I would be watching this scene right here. We would be having the opportunity Isaiah had and John had to look at the greatness of God, the greatness right now that exists, God's greatness exists right now, just like this. If we could pause the service and glance, there'd be Apache helicopters flying back and forth. And when they spoke, it would shake everything and stuff would be rattling across the top of this. And the whole building, we'd be wondering, is it going to stay safe? That would be the nearness to God that we would experience. And that's going on right now around the throne of God. See, our our need is not to be great. Our need is to see great. That's what my need is as a human being. Elizabeth Browning said in her poem, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God. And only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces, unaware of this great God so near to us, yet a stranger. Now, let me just conclude by introducing you to the effect this greatness has on this man named Isaiah. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, Then one of the seraphim. Send me. Here's a man eager to serve. We just met some folks in Malachi who were disinterested, disaffectioned, unavailable. Here is a man eager to serve because here is a man who has encountered the greatness of God. And let me introduce you to something that I I don't know that any of us are going to run towards this. All right, so question, first thing, the first thing he experiences when he gets near God is a sense of, woe oh, my, oh my gosh. I, I know he buried his head, I'm sure. He wondered, how did I find myself? How, is there a back door? I dare not move. The first thing he is aware of is his unworthiness. How did he get in touch with that? Well, because he gazed upon the one who was worthy. It humbled him instantly. This is not an arrogant man. This is not a man who now says, hey, you know, I've been, I've been waiting to have some words with you. Because there's some stuff going on in my life. There's some people doing some things. that How do you even let this kind of stuff happen? God, you understand, that's not his posture. I'm sure once he's stopped wetting his pants, he began to try and figure out what to do next. And he got very quickly in touch with his own Sin. He got convicted in a paralyzing way. Whoa, his me. It felt heavy for him to be aware of his sin, his failures, his discrepancy, his unrighteousness before the presence of God. Now, listen, most of us don't want to go there. Right? We, we don't. We don't want to experience that kind of conviction. I mean, if I were to ask you, when was the last time you just were under the weight? Now, I'm not talking about sorrowed over the pain that was going on in your life and people messing with you and you're bothered by it. I'm talking about your own sin. The grief of your own sin sits on you and you're reduced to a puddle because you're aware of your attitude, of your hurtfulness, of your lack of, of your disinterest and disaffection and unwillingness to do. You you just are aware of what you're made of. And you feel underneath the weight of that. Well, here's, here's what I love about the reality of the grace of God. The moment he gets deep down into the woefulness of his own sin, that's when the coals come to bring healing to his sin. I think there's way too many of us as Christians, one of the reasons why we don't get the greatness of God, because we just haven't, we haven't seen God's greatness, and our sins aren't all that bad. They're not all that bad. There's a lot of really obnoxious people out there. I mean, I'm not one of them. I'm, I'm, pff, I do some things every once in a while. I know I'm not perfect, Keith, but <laughs> Isaiah, quickly, quickly, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. I'm just like them. I'm as bad as anybody. He was in touch with himself, immediately humbled. But grace doesn't miss a moment. God rushes into that moment with the atoning work of Christ. I don't know what those coals are, but they're nothing unless the Son of God goes to the cross and makes them something. Those things can't cleanse a thing. They become agents of purification because on a cross, the Son of God was going to come and take all the punishment for our sin so that Isaiah would receive none of it, and he, that being can pick those tongs up and can touch the area of his life where he's aware of his sin and heal it. Listen, don't, don't be afraid to let God take you there. Because when you get to the depth of your own sin, you're going to find a God who's got tongs in his hands. And he's going to touch that area. He's taking you there so you let him go there in your life and bring incredible healing into your life immediately Isaiah gets in touch with this God's on a mission. This God's up to something. This God wants to accomplish something, and and I want to be a part of it. And he's volunteering, and he's saying, yes, Lord, here am I. Send me the, the one, yeah, the one with the stained pants, the one who was trying to hide from you just moments ago, the one who was fully aware of how offensive my life is, but yet something else is operating in me now. To where now you say, God, you're on a mission and I'm all over it. God, I want to serve. I want to, Whatever you got, I want to do it. So do you see the result greatness has? Listen, I, I, know, I know everybody right now, you're, this is as sober as this room gets, isn't it? Because this feels like one of those, man, I really feel in a weird place when you go here with this sort of a message. That's exactly where Isaiah goes. And Isaiah gets launched into the purpose of God. And he loves the purpose of God. And his life is forever changed. Don't be afraid to get near the greatness of God. You and I desperately need to get near the greatness of God. And then he gets an assignment here. How many of you guys want this assignment? Okay. You going to go, Isaiah? I'm going to send you. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not answer. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? This doesn't sound like a good assignment, does it? How long is this going to go on, God? But here's your ministry, Isaiah. It's 740 B.C. Your situation all around you, as you answer the call that I'm sending you out on, is going to go from bad to worse. It's going to decline and decline and decline and get worse and worse until about 600, about 140 years later, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar is going to pull up at the doorstep of Jerusalem and burn it to the ground and take everybody away except for about a tenth of the people laid scattered in the land. Go. You you got that kind of mission burning inside of you? Because I can tell you this I'm I'm an American. I I use vending machines. If I do something, I want something back. I put my coins in, I want product. I'm going to lay my life down and serve. I want to get something out of this, God. And you're telling me what I'm at what? I'm gonna get a scorched landscape, a bunch of people who won't respond, cities lying desolate. That that's what you're offering me. And that's exactly the call he answers. How many of us are game for that? Yeah, I'm in. Sign me up. Yeah, I'll be at church next week. That sounds cool. But we have a different mentality. we're looking for something for us in our serving of God that's not about God's greatness. It's not about his worth. It's about what will fulfill me. What will do something for me. What's in this for me. And there is something in this for us. But you can't start there. You got to start with, if I'm the Lord, where's my fear and obedience? Ray Steadman, he says... We, we've already discussed the distinction, listen to this, between the traditional view in which the pastor is the leader and the congregation is the audience. That view leads us to ask a very me-oriented question. What did I get out of the service? All right, welcome to most churches. What did I get out of the service? By contrast, the biblical view stresses the fact that worship is actually ministering to God. God. In that scenario, the pastor and the other leaders are prompters. The congregation is the performer and God is the audience. That view leads us to a radically different question. How well did I do today? And was God pleased with my worship this morning? Do you understand we get trained as Americans into evaluating products. That's what we do. We want our money back. I'll hire an attorney. And so we come into church with that mentality. And it's kind of like, okay, how did, how did the, church, how'd the church do for me today? How did the message do for me today? Did it do for me what I wanted? Am I getting fed the way I want to be fed? How did covenant group do for me? How's the group doing for me? How's the leader doing for me? How often does he interact with me? How's he engaging? How's the room feel? How do the other people relate to me? It's all about how everything flows to me. But when you stand in the throne room of God, the vacuum goes that way. Worthy to receive, to receive, to receive from our lives, to receive our praise, to receive our glory, to receive our money, to receive everything from us. That's where the worthiness is. So when I walk out of this meeting today, please don't walk out evaluating how I did. Walk out of here today evaluating how you did. Did you worship God? Did you pour yourself out on him? Did you bring an offering that he would be pleased with? Or is he going to call you a robber and a cheat? At least you're here. You honored the meeting. That's a start. It's not a good start for Malachi, but at some point the people were still honoring meetings and God had to say, but I wish you'd stop. I wish you'd close the doors. I wish you'd not bring those kind of offerings anymore. Now let me ask Eric if you would go ahead and come back up, please. Isaiah is an interesting contrast to the people in Malachi. This last thought from Richard Phillips. He says, it is when we realize how great is the God we serve. How total is his sovereignty over all and how glorious is his kingdom that we want to serve him in all we do. Remember the people in Malachi's day, they they were wearied by these requirements, these meetings, these sorting through their goats and figuring out which one they needed to give. They were wearied, inconvenienced Isaiah says, send me, even if I won't even see any fruitfulness in my life. Do you realize Isaiah served God all these years? At some point later on in his ministry, he cries out to God, and he just says, God, oh, that you would just rend the heavens and come down here and kindle our hearts on fire like they once were. Do you understand Isaiah never saw revival? He never saw it. Can I just tell you, if you've been in the American church for a while, you know, we're American church attenders. If churches don't become for us what we want them to be in the next two years, we'll go somewhere else. I don't know how that would have played out for Isaiah, as he just watched one town crumble and people not respond, and then these enemies gather in a siege of Jerusalem. Read the book of Lamentations. It is a horrible sight. What you going to do? You're going to turn to Isaiah and say, hey, Isaiah, you must not be much of a leader, dude. You need to get your act together, man. You got, but you got a prayer life, Isaiah? Because, you know, hey, what's going on here? Isaiah fulfilled the ministry God gave him. It was not an easy ministry. Listen, and, there, and there's some of us here. You're called by God into things that aren't just turning instantly fruitful. And I know the temptation. You don't want to quit, right? Because I... I I wanted this to be easier than it is. This is not about what's easy. This is about who's worthy. The next thing you're going to do, is it an act of worship? Or is it based on the return you think you might get? Because Isaiah would have gone home day one. And the people of Malachi did exactly that. It's when we see... Isaiah had not even learned what labor God had in mind for him. But when he heard the question, whom shall I send? His newly consecrated lips broke forth. Here am I. Send me. If we see just a portion of what he saw, we will do the same. Considering not the difficulties, but the high privilege of serving so great a Lord. Those Who see the Lord in his sovereign glory have an inward compulsion to serve this God. Serving God is the glory of their lives. Their service is measured, listen, not so much in what they achieve or what God achieves through them. But rather in the sheer wonder of the God they serve. Let's stand up together. Lord, this this word feels to me like a thousand pounds. I believe partly because, Lord, it, it puts me in touch with how you are in a way that Maybe it hasn't been front and center enough for me. Lord, it puts me in touch with my own life in a way that makes me feel just like Isaiah. Woe is me. I am undone. For I am man with sins and weaknesses and waywardness. And I live amongst the people that way too. And Lord, we we have misplaced your greatness. You have become too common to us. And yet we would ask for your favor. We would ask that you ignore that. We would ask that you just continue to treat us like the chosen ones that Jacob and his descendants would be. We keep bringing offerings somewhere along the line. Lord, you've either said or you're going to say, I just wish you'd stop. this morning I pray you'd be gracious to us. You would awaken in us the ability to see greatness. Lord, it too much of my life wanting to be great. Lord, help me to see great. Help me to be affected. Help me to be undone. Lord, there's no way I'm going to be who you call me to be or live the life you call called me to live if I'm out of touch with the greatness of who you are. Lord, this morning the reality is you are a father. And Lord, I want to honor you. You are the master. And I want to fear you and I want to respect your ways and I want to obey who you are. You are the Lord of hosts, Lord, what's going on right now around your throne, it's beyond our imagination. It's a source of power and amazement and awe, and Lord, we desperately need to see more of it. So Lord, right here this morning, God, I pray that you'd sweep through this room right now. God, I pray for those that are specially seated right here in this middle section. Right here, people who have known you 15, 20, 30 years. Lord, why is it that some of the most excited people are the people who just met you yesterday? And some of us who have known you and had the chance to be around you and learn and draw near. Lord, we are the ones sometimes who are the worst advertisers for what great is. Your grief over the priests who were to lead and influence the people. God, I pray this morning, I pray for an outbreak, an anointing, a work upon those seated right here. Lord, and I'm amongst them, been saved over 30 years, Lord. I'm seated right here with them. God, that you would make us screaming advertisers for the greatness of our God. Young people and old people and strangers and visitors and children would get around our lives. And they would see and hear and observe something that screams out, God is great. God is worthy. To him who sits on the throne, let him receive. Let him receive from my life. Let him be honored. Lord, may it be that our lives scream of your honor. And there's a loud pronouncing of your worth and of your greatness, Lord. May it be that we're not a people that you've got to come and make a case for your greatness in our midst. Lord, please spare us from being a people where you got to come and remind us that you are a great God. Lord, may it be that for days and years and years and years in our lives, we are a people declaring the greatness of our God, the fresh sense of amazement. God, draw us, seal this in our hearts this morning, affect us, affect our lives, Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, holy, holy is He.